you so much. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. What a wonderful Savior we know. Let me invite you to open your Bible tonight to the book of Ruth in chapter number 4. Ruth in chapter number 4, and I'd like to begin reading tonight from Ruth chapter 4 in verse number 1. Thank you for your faithfulness to the house of God and to the word of God. And uh, My, the choir was exceptional tonight. Never, never heard that number before. Special. Uh, uh, my, and then the, the special song tonight was just a great reminder. Uh, my, kind of fits in well with the story of Ruth, doesn't it? That lady who stood at the crossroads said, my life for the will of God, I, no matter where it takes, no matter where I go, and for all of the world stacked against her, she said, I will live for him. And behind the scenes, she could cast her care upon her Savior. Well, did he care for her. Every step of the way, there is the Lord doing the great work he always does. We come to Ruth chapter number 4, and, and of course, ringing in the ears of Ruth would have been the last word she heard in chapter 3. That would be her mother-in-law saying, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he hath finished the thing this day. It wouldn't take very long. And why the next morning would come probably seemed to be a mighty long night for Ruth and for Boaz. But sure enough, the next morning comes, and, and the Bible tells us there is an appointment by the city gates. You know, the city gate of Bethlehem, or any city in Bible times, was a, a special place. Of course, we could picture in our mind the massive gates, probably in that day, made of iron, and, and uh, they would be huge, and of course, they would be used most of all to keep an enemy out, but... But over time, the city gates became the central place. It became the hub of activity. It wasn't just the outpost where the soldiers would go in the watchtowers and, and look for advancing armies coming against the city, but it became the place where the ladies would go and meet their friends, where the kids would go and play. It became somewhat of a marketplace. It became the place of business, like we read in Ruth chapter 4. It almost turned into a governmental center. Oftentimes in the Bible, you'll find kings going to the city gates, and, and they will address the people. It's a place where judges would sit, and maybe it wouldn't be the, the biggest cases ever tried, but perhaps some civil cases, some smaller cases, the judge would sit in the gate, and the judgments would be given it was the place where the old guys would go and the old guys would talk. You know what I mean? Uh, in Bible times, the old timers would meet every day. And, and you know what I mean? The old guys talk a lot and don't say anything. The old times, in Bible times, they did that at the city gates. And years ago, they did it in what was called the town square. Nowadays, we call it Tim Hortons. But, you know, it's the same idea. Just a bunch of old guys just doing a lot of talking and not saying anything. Why, the city gate was the heartbeat of the city. The city gate was where anything that mattered was going to happen. And so the Bible tells us, if you're able, could I invite you to stand together with me? And from Ruth chapter 4 in verse number 1, the Bible says, Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. And look, look at the word we're going to find. What do you know? There it is again. That good old word, behold. I do believe it's five times in the book of Ruth. Just that word that says, whoever would have thunk it, you know, excuse the grammar, but whoever would have guessed it. I mean, the last thing you'd ever expect to happen, but you know, there is the Lord making it happen one more time, isn't he? So there's that great word, a Bible way of saying it just happened, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, who oh, such a one, turn aside and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. 
Father, we're in desperate need of you doing your work in our hearts tonight. And, and Lord, I, I pray that you would indeed stir our hearts for revival. Oh, Lord, we know we have a great Savior who loves us, and he died for us, a great Redeemer. And, Lord, many in this room tonight have come to that Redeemer and called on the name of Christ, and they have been saved. But now, Lord, I pray your word would do a mighty work in our hearts and our lives. And would you one more time challenge us from this mighty story of the book of Ruth? For someone here that has never been saved, Lord, may they understand that the invitation of God is not a permanent thing. There comes a time when the last invitation is heard by a human. Oh, that tonight they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So we ask you to do a great work in this place to our hearts. In the strong name of Jesus we come. Amen. Thank you so much and please be seated. Sure enough, the Bible tells us there's God behind the scenes doing it again. And of all things, behold, of all the people that would show up at the city gate that day, it was the gentleman that Boaz spoke of. He spoke of that gentleman back in Ruth chapter 3, verse number 12. Now it is true, he told Ruth, that I am thy near kinsman. Ruth, I can be your redeemer, and I am happy to be your redeemer. I will be your redeemer. We mentioned last night the redeemer had two great jobs. There were more, but two great jobs. He would buy the land that had been sold in times of hardship and get it back in the family. If worse, a man had sold himself into slavery, it was his responsibility to buy the slave and set him free. But you know, in the case we deal with with the book of Ruth, there was another great responsibility. Why, if there was a widow and her, her husband was gone and there were no sons or grandsons to carry on the family name, it was the job of that redeemer to raise up a name to that family, to raise up a son for that family. So the Bible tells us in Ruth 3 and 12 that, that Boaz in his integrity is saying, Ruth, I'm willing to be the kinsman. I am willing to buy the land. I am willing to buy the lady and give you a son. But you need to know there is somebody that is nearer than I. So in verse number 13 of Ruth chapter 3, he said, Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of the kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of the kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of the kinsman to thee as the Lord liveth. Lie down until the morning. So now the Bible tells us the morning has finally come. I do get the idea Ruth didn't sleep at all that night. I do get the idea, and I'm kind of thinking here, that the minutes must have ticked away like hours. It must have seemed forever till that sun rose. And yet early that morning, it was Naomi who told her, it won't take long now. This is going to be the day. We'll find out how this plays out. So there is Boaz, bright and early in the morning, standing by the city gate. And what do you know? The Bible tells us in Ruth chapter 4, verse number 1, that of all people, the gentleman that he spoke about earlier shows up. But what I find to be so fascinating when you read Ruth 4, verse number 1, I find it so fascinating how 3,300 years later, the Lord reminds us of this gentleman. Notice how it writes. The Bible tells us when the gentleman came by, Boaz put it like this, Who such a one, turn aside and sit down here. What a word. Who such a one. Do you know this gentleman, there's some things we can easily surmise. From the text, we know first of all he was a man of great reputation. 
why he was a kinsman redeemer, able to be the redeemer, and it would be one of the finest families in all of Bethlehem. If he was a relative of Elimelech, that meant that he was of the Ephrathites. And the Ephrathites, well, their lineage, according to 1 Chronicles, would go all the way back to Ephra and to Caleb. I mean to tell you, this was an esteemed family, a respected family. So the gentleman who comes by the city gate that day is a well-known man. We know that because in Ruth chapter 3, Boaz was very succinct and very clear. No, there is somebody that is closer to you. He's picturing that man. This isn't any old gentleman that's going to come by. This isn't some Joe that just happens to be there. No, this man Boaz knows specifically the gentleman of whom he speaks. But you know, we also discover he's a wealthy man. Because in a few moments, when it comes to the point, will you buy the land? He was more than ready to open up the checkbook and get it done. A wealthy man, a respected man, a man, an honored man of a great family. I mean, there is tradition here. There is respect here. There is some money here. We are getting the idea that this gentleman is a well-known man, a man of great esteem. But isn't it fascinating that when we come to chapter 4, verse number 1, what we never find is the name of this gentleman. Though everybody in Bethlehem knew his name, though certainly Boaz knew his name, he was certainly thinking of this specific gentleman, though he had a name, a great name, a respected name. Isn't it fascinating that when we come to Ruth chapter 4, we never discover that name? But if that weren't enough, the Bible tells us how at least Boaz calls to him. He calls to him with the phrase or the word, Ho, such a one. In the language of the Old Testament, that would be what the English teacher would call an indefinite pronoun. That little phrase in our English, ho, such a one, it would be a word that an author might use if he didn't want to mention a specific person or a specific place. It would also be used of an individual when their name had been forgotten. It was used as sometimes they'll say in the shows when names are changed to protect the innocent. But it was certainly a name that was an indefinite pronoun. It was the name that would be used when either accidentally or intentionally a name wanted to be ignored. Now here's the thing in Ruth chapter 4. Obviously the man has a name of esteem. Obviously the man is a respected and wealthy man. And while in the city of Bethlehem, it certainly would not be a stretch to say this man was Mr. Somebody. When it comes to the eternal words of God, do you know how God wanted him remembered? God wanted him remembered as an indefinite pronoun. God wants you and I to think of this gentleman as ho, such a one. Good old Mr. Ho, such a one. Not to be confused with the famous Singaporean doctor, Dr. Ho. No, the Bible tells us we are being introduced to Mr. Indefinite Pronoun. It is a Bible way of saying, God saying, I don't care if he is Mr. Somebody. I don't care if he is Mr. Wealthy. I don't care if he is Mr. Big Name. I don't care if he is from an esteemed family. I don't care if the gentleman is respected. God is saying to me and to all of heaven, this man is nothing but Mr. Ho. Oh, such a one. He is nothing but an indefinite pronoun. But there's something else here. I very rarely do this, so please bear with me tonight. Uh, I recognize that uh, uh, in Canada, you do what we do in the U.S., you speak English. 
you do speak a better version of it, I think, than we do, but, but allegedly it's the same language. And, and I recognize we're not here speaking Greek and Hebrew, and, and I know some preachers, they just can't seem to do anything without spitting out words all the time. But bear with me a little bit here. I rarely do this. Yet in the language of the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, that little phrase, ho such a one, is fascinating. Because it is, as the English teacher would tell us, an indefinite pronoun, but it's something else. And this is what it sounds like in the language of the Hebrews. That little word, ho such a one, sounds like poloni almoni. Now that's fascinating. Because the English professor would tell us that is a farrago. And I say, thank you, Mr. Google. That's how I learned this stuff. But a farrago, a farrago would be words in a language that really have no meaning. But their meaning is derived from what they sound like. So in our English language, we have words kind of like a hodgepodge, maybe a word like hocus pocus, a word like helter skelter. You know, none of those words mean anything, but when you get a hodgepodge or a hocus pocus or a helter skelter, well, while those words have no meaning, when you put them together, they sound what they mean. And that's what this is in the Old Testament. It's a farrago. So it's not God just saying, I don't care how rich he is. I don't care how big he is. I don't care how famous he is in the eternal words of God, he will be forever known as Mr. Ho such a one. To heaven, he's a nobody. But it's even more than that. When God uses Poloni Almoni to describe the man, it is basically God not just ignoring the man, it's God dismissing him and disdaining him. It is God saying, this man is worth a laugh. This man is to be mocked. There is the story of somebody that in heaven's way, God says, not only do I ignore that man, not only am I refusing to allow his name to be printed in the eternal words of God, but forever and forever he'll be known as nothing but Poloni Almoni. He'll be nothing but a hodgepodge. He'll be nothing but Mr. Ho, such a one. I mean, there's a lot of names in the Bible. I happen to be studying right now 1 Chronicles 1, 2, 3, and 4. And if you, don't, if you haven't got enough names in your life, just check that out, you know. And, and I'm sure most of you are doing your Bible memory from 1 Chronicles 1. I'm sure that's how it's working out. But I got to tell you, if there's one thing of many things you learn from 1 Chronicles is the Lord's pretty good with names. And the Lord loves names. And while you and I, our heads might swim, you know, say, what is all, what are all these names? They matter to God. But the God who found the way to put, oh, I suppose a couple thousand names in the Chronicles, when he comes to Ruth chapter number 4, finds one of the most esteemed men in the city of Bethlehem, one of the honored leaders, one of the city fathers, but when it comes to the eternal words of God, we can hear the Lord say, I don't care what his name is, I don't care how famous he is, I don't care how talented he is, I don't care how rich he is, I don't care how everybody esteems him and respects him. That man does not have respect in heaven. To God, he is Mr. Ho, such a one. He is Mr. Poloni Almoni. There is a story here, isn't there? So how does someone who is esteemed, respected, and certainly wealthy, how does somebody who is the number one kinsman redeemer of the most esteemed family that goes back to the Ephrathites in Bethlehem, how does Mr. Somebody turn into Mr. Nobody? How does a man like this become Mr. Ho, such a one? Notice, if you would, in your Bible tonight, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 2, the story begins. 
The he, that would be Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit you down here. They sat down. Ten elders. Once again, we are reminded of the great respect that this man Boaz demands by his presence, by his character, by the way he speaks. You know, in the word of God for a situation like this, a simple business transaction, the Bible tells us you would need two, maybe three witnesses. It would appear our good friend Boaz has taken no chances. He says not two, not three, he got ten of them. And not only did he get ten witnesses, the Bible says they were elders of the city. So the young pup coming by, you can almost see boys, no, 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 you're too young. No, 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 you're not respected enough. No, it is the ten leading elders. It is ten highly respected men. Boaz is going to make sure nothing can go wrong today. The Bible tells us, he tells the ten men, sit down. And notice, it didn't matter how busy they were that day. It says they sat down. And in verse number three, he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi that is come again out of the country of Moab selleth a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech. That's a little unusual way of saying things here that he would talk about the Naomi in such a manner. But the Bible tells us, and, and one more time we're reminded of the integrity of this man Boaz. He is not going to lawyer up. He is not going to play word games. He is not going to start parsing verbs. I mean to tell you, Boaz looks square in the eyeballs of Mr. Ho such a one. And as he did with Ruth the night before, this old man is hiding nothing. I, I mean, the guy is so respected. And I got to tell you, there's so many things to love about Boaz and his honesty and his integrity. I, I mean, you just have so much admiration. Because, folks, we're living in such a day where you can't trust what a guy says. And every word's got double meanings. And, and we put on the news and we know their mouths are speaking and they don't mean what they say. And, and then everywhere we go, it just seems like in our societies that there is just so much double talk. And there's so many words, you just don't know what to do. And to meet a man like Boaz is so rare, but it's so refreshing. So he's going to lay it straight out for Mr. Ho, such a one. He said, you know, Naomi has come again out of the country of Moab, and now she's got the parcel of land. They had to sell that land. It's time to bring it back into the family. And yet... The Bible tells us that Naomi was willing to say, I'm not going to work the land. Of course she wouldn't. So she was willing not only to have somebody buy the land and get it in the family, but the phrase is telling us that whoever buys the land to bring it in the family will get to work the land. So this is going to turn into an investment. Now in Bible times, once every 50 years, they had what was called the year of Jubilee. The slave would be set free, and any land that was in a distant, uh, uh, somebody else's hands would be returned to the family ownership. However far away that was, we don't know. But here is Boaz laying it out. He says, somebody's got to buy that land, get it back in the family name, and Naomi is going to allow the Redeemer to work the land. So he is basically saying this is a good deal. This is going to be a business investment. This is a business opportunity. You're going to get the land, get it back in the family, which means you're going to be looking real good, you know. Why, oh, that man is the rescuer of Naomi. But not only are you going to get the land back in the family, you're going to get to work the land. You're going to get to cut the deal. You're going to make some money here. And, and, and please believe me, this is so impressive because those are one of those fine little details that a man might leave out, you know. Oh, by the way, you get to make money off the land. I, I mean, that's the kind of thing usually shows up later, doesn't it? 
But Boaz is very upfront. So somebody has to buy the land. And in verse number four, he said, I thought to advertise thee. You know, advertise. He's going to make this very open and very plain. I'm hiding nothing now. So in front of these elders, and by now the crowd is beginning to gather, right there in the city gate, right there in their Tim Hortons, he said, I thought to advertise thee, saying, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. It's how you made a legal transaction. And now Boaz, right in front of the witnesses, right there in the city gate, is hiding nothing. Sir, you can buy that lamb, get it back into the Naomi family, our brother Elimelech, but you'll also get to work the land. You're going to make some money here. This is a really good deal. Well, Boaz has laid it out like that. He's basically saying, Mr. Ho, such a one, you got first dibs. So in verse number five, four, he said, if thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. And again, he hides nothing. If thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. So Boaz is looking at Mr. Ho, such a one, saying the land is here, the opportunity is here, and oh, by the way, Mr. Ho, such a one, there is a little matter called Leviticus 26. And the Bible tells us that not only was the opportunity there, the responsibility was there. No, this was not just a good business deal. This was not just an opportunity that had come along. There is plenty of Bible verses back in Leviticus. And of course, for those who lived in a place like Bethlehem, the book of Leviticus was the law of the land. So the law of the land of Israel, which also happened to be the law of God, said, sir, you need to understand that you have a responsibility before God. So while this is a good deal here, and while it's a good business transaction, that really doesn't matter because the God of the Bible wants you to be the kinsman redeemer. The God of the Bible has commanded you to step forward and to repurchase the land. Well... The Bible tells us in verse number four, I don't suppose he'd get the words out fast enough. Good old Mr. Ho, such a one, says, I will redeem it. I mean, to tell you, he can't get there fast enough. Oh, I know a good deal when I see it. I mean, all I got to do is just get the shoe thing going, and I can get that land. And he is starting to hear the cha-ching of the cash register. And everybody under the age of 30 has no idea what that means. Do you know that? Isn't that sad? You know, there's two things that people under 30 need to experience. The cha-ching of an old-fashioned cash register, that was just a great sound. You know what else they've never experienced? Not, I don't know why it matters tonight, but that would be somebody scratching their fingernails on a chalkboard. Do you know what I mean? I mean, don't, don't you think they ought to be able to experience that beautiful thing? You, you've never lived, but you have. And, and yet the cha-ching of the cash register, why, you can almost see the dollar signs in Mr. Ho such a one's eyes. This is a good deal. And not only is it a good deal, it's a good deal on two levels. Number one, he's thinking, I'm going to redeem the land, and ho, ho, I'm going to make some money. But forget about that. I'm also going to be looking good. I mean, I'm white riding in here on, on the white horse. I'm coming in here, and I'm going to rescue the poor widow. Everybody here is going to like me. Everybody here is going to appreciate me. Everybody's going to hear is going to say what a good guy Mr. Ho such a one is. I mean, don't hurt yourself, buddy, patting yourself on the back. But he's not only come out looking good, he's going to come out wealthy in the deal. How could he say no? So at the end of verse number four, Mr. Ho such a one says, I will redeem it. That thud you heard right there, that would be Ruth's heart. You can't help but think she had to be somewhere watching all this happen, right? 
And now Ruth, the night before, is thinking, this guy Boaz, I mean, he may be 110, but this Boaz loves the Lord. He loves the God that I love. He understands the God that I do. He loves the Bible that I do. And Boaz is going to be my kinsman redeemer. And Boaz is going to raise seed to my family. And Boaz is going to do it not because he has to. He's going to do it because he loves the Lord and he loves the Word of God. I mean, it couldn't be better for somebody like Ruth than to have a Boaz in her life and Yet now all of a sudden, according to the Bible, somebody else was between her and Boaz. And when Mr. Ho, such a one, says, I'll redeem her or redeem the land, you can imagine Ruth shaking her head saying it was too good to be true. There is, however, Mr. Ho, such a one, the fine print. And you will notice the fine print in verse number 5, when then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, this is beautiful, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess. I'm quite certain that wasn't an accident. See me, sir, there's this little fine print that's in the Bible that you not only have to redeem the land and get it back in the Naomi family, but the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer is one of them is to raise up seed to the family. So there is no son. Malon and Killian have died. There is no Elimelech. Our brother died. That could have meant cousin. It could have meant uh, uncle. could have meant a lot of things. But our brother Elimelech is gone. And there is no son. Why? Malon and Killian, they're married, it seems, for 10 years. And there was no son. There is no heritage. There is no name to carry on the family name. We cannot let a family go extinct. So now in front of 10, not two, 10 elders, not any old witnesses, the most respected people in Bethlehem, and a little later we realize the whole city seems to have come. Boaz stands there and looks Mr. Ho such a one in the eyeballs and says, Sir, you need to buy the land, but you also need to buy the lady. You need to raise up seed to that family. Or you need to marry Ruth. Excuse me. You need to marry Ruth the Moabitess. I just love to hear how that name must have sounded. And you know, we are reminded five times that she is Ruth the Moabitess. The word Moab or Moabitess is found 14 times. So in four chapters to say something 14 times, well, that is the proverbial drumbeat in the background of the book of Ruth. It's the one thing we just never can get away from. It's the one thing that never seems to disappear until you get to the very end. Why? Because it's the drumbeat of the story. It is not Ruth a beautiful young Jewish maiden. It is not Ruth even a beautiful young lady. It is Ruth who, well, in Bible terms, you know, she had to be past 30, which which meant, boom, she was right over the hill, you know. And, well, I know Boaz was up there, but 30 and not married, congratulations. I mean, we're talking about old maid situation. Not today, back then. And here is the story of this Ruth the Moabitess. And all the way through the book of Ruth, we're constantly reminded of that. We never get away from that. In good scenarios, in bad scenarios, it's Ruth the Moabitess. It's Ruth the Moabitess. Why? Because there is a racial component to this. Why? Because we can never be forget the moment that she turned her back on Moab and turned her back on the pagan idols and turned her back on her friends and turned her back on her family. And Ruth the Moabitess said, I am trusting in the Jehovah, the God. 
God of the Bible. I am underneath his wings. And you know, when she came back to Bethlehem, nobody else could get over the fact she was Ruth, the Moabitess. And now in front of the elders, in front of the witnesses, forget that in front of the whole city, forget that in front of you and me. Boaz stands there and looks at Mr. Ho, such a one, and said, Sir, you got to redeem the lamb. The Bible says so. But not only do you redeem the lamb, you have to redeem Ruth. You're going to have to purchase her, and she is going to become your wife. That is not just a good idea. That is not just the necessary idea. That is Bible. So now, Mr. Ho, such a one, is standing at the crossroads of his life. Funny how that keeps showing up in the book of Ruth, doesn't it? Hey, Mr. Ho, such a one, I, I don't suppose we could even say for him it was an M&M's or Skittles moment. What are you going to do, sir? Come on, Mr. Ho, such a one, right here and right now. That man Boaz is looking you square in the eyeballs. Uh, completely surrounding you are ten elders, the finest men of Bethlehem. The crowd is gathered. The, every one of their eyeballs are staring a hole and a dagger right through Mr. Ho, such a one. And tomorrow's going to be too late. It is this morning at the city gate that Mr. Ho, such a one, has a choice to make. M&Ms or Skittles? Am I going to buy the lady and buy the land, or am I going to refuse to buy the lady and the land? Now, I'd sure like to have the land because that means I'll make some money. But Ruth, <clears throat> the Moabitess, I mean, if I married her, there would be Moabitess blood in my family. And you know, to us, the day in which we live, particularly in a place like Vancouver, that, that's not a big issue. But you understand, in Bethlehem it was. And it's not just everything that went along with the Moabitesses being foreigners. They were Moabitesses. They were the enemies of Israel. In the United States, there's a famous feud, perhaps you've heard of it, years ago between the Hatfields and the McCoys. And it was kind of that way between Bethlehem and Moab. I mean, they had a lot of reasons to distrust them. They had a lot of reasons to hate them. And you know, the Moabites had a couple of things against the Bethlehemites as well. Not the least of that, that one of their kings named King Eglon had been murdered by one of those Israelites. And do you know the Jewish historians tell us that Ruth's father was King Eglon? Take it or leave it. And so now that whole thing is the drumbeat through the book of Ruth. And Mr. Ho, such a one, has come to the crossroads. Right here and right now, he's got to decide. M&Ms or Skittles, I want the land, but I don't want that lady. I'd sure like to make some money off the deal, but I, I, I'd sure like to look good in front of everybody. I'd sure like people to applaud for me and to like me. But if that means that I have to take Moabitess blood into my family, all right, Mr. Poloni Almoni. All right, Mr. Somebody who is about ready to become Mr. Nobody. All right, Mr. Ho, such a one. What are you going to do? Notice, if you would, in your Bible, verse number six, the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself. 
Notice the rest of that verse. Lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself. And he said it a second time. For I cannot redeem it. When you're studying your Bible, if you see something repeated, you know, it kind of makes a point to us. But in Bible days, when you were writing, understand, if you're sitting at a computer and you're writing a paragraph, if you want to emphasize something, there's a lot of ways to do this. I mean, you could put it in bold text. You could make the different font. You could make it larger. You could put it in italics. You could underline it. There are a lot of things you and I can do with a few keystrokes that they couldn't do in Bible times when they're writing with their hand. So when you're reading the Bible and you find a word or a phrase repeated in close proximity, that's kind of a Bible way of putting it in bold. Putting it in bold, underlining it, and making it in italics. And you will notice what God wants us to remember about Mr. Ho such a one. He doesn't want us to remember his name. He will be forever known as Mr. Nobody, Mr. Ho such a one. He doesn't want us to know anything of his character. All God wants us to do is look at that man and laugh and say he's nothing but Polonial Money. But here's what God does want us to know. When that man stood at the crossroads of his life to make the biggest decision he would ever make, he said, I cannot. He is. Lying. He's lying. He said, well, how do you know? Okay, because there's two things he'd have to do. Number one, he'd have to pull out the checkbook and pay for the land. And he already said he wanted to do that. He said, I'll redeem it. I'm ready to buy it. So that it gets rid of that excuse. He certainly had enough money to do this. So now, when he is confronted with a choice for the ages... And the Bible says you have a responsibility, sir. You're the nearer kinsman. It is your Bible responsibility to get the land and to get the lady. He sounds so spiritual, doesn't he? <clears throat> I cannot. That's not true. Yes, you can. You have enough money to do it. You've already admitted that. So all you have to do is want to obey the Bible and take Ruth into your family. Yes, you can. When he said, I cannot, the truth is, he should have said, I will not. He's lying. See, that's the thing, isn't it? When it comes to doing what God wants Mr. Ho such a one to do in the Bible, or more importantly tonight, when it comes to what God wants me to do or what God intends for you to do, and we call that the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God, it is absolutely a lie and it is absolutely fraudulent for any Christian to say, I cannot obey the Bible. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, I can. It says in the book, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, if I can't, then God is a liar. Let's get a scissors. Let's rip that verse right out of the Bible and let's quit playing games. No, I can do what I'm supposed to do. And you can do what you're supposed to do. Well, you know, I just can't get out and on Sunday night and go to church. Funny, if it's bingo, they find a way. No, 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 no. You can, you can because the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. 
You just have to decide that God's more important than what's on TV. Well, I just can't. I just can't tithe. I just can't give from a local church. Sorry, Brother White. You know, the Lord knows I really like to. And, and Yeah, yeah, and part of that's because I got a bill, you know, for that thing and those toys and that and that and that and that. And when it comes to the giving thing, you know, God just keeps getting pushed. In. No, you can, and I can too. And you and I can give, and you and I can support missions, and you and I can be bold for Christ, and you and I can be faithful to the local church, and you and I can serve the Lord. Yes, we can. We can do the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And we come up with all these super sound and spiritual excuses and reasons. Oh, you know, Brother White, I'd sure love to do that. And, and Brother White, the Lord knows my heart. Well, that's a problem. And the Lord knows that I really, really want to, but... I cannot. Sorry. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And God would not have told you or told me to do the good and the acceptable perfect will of God if we couldn't do the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We can always obey the Bible. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not going to say it's not going to cost us anything. I'm not going to say everybody's going to like it. But I can always obey the Bible. And you can always obey the Bible. There may be a cost to count. There may be a price to pay. But you and I can always do what God wants us to do. And when we come up with some silly excuse and we convince ourselves, I cannot, then we are doing exactly what Mr. Ho such a one did. We're lying. Lying. <clears throat> I cannot obey the Bible, sir. Well, somehow they never say it like that, right? <clears throat> yep, I've considered this. He might have even prayed about it and got peace for all we know. And you know, Boaz, I, I appreciate what you're saying here, and I, I realize the great need of Naomi, and, and if you're willing to redeem it, I know the Bible says I'm supposed to, but I cannot. Obey the Bible. And you know what God does with this guy? He says, I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how big you are. I don't care how much you think everybody likes you. I don't care what your name is. From here on out, 3,300 years from now, you will be known as nothing but Polonia Almoni, a.k.a. Mr. Ho Sajawa. Because he said, I cannot obey the Bible. Now, having absolutely ripped Mr. Ho such a one to shreds, the best I know how, there's one thing you can say positively about the gentleman. At least he's honest. And if you notice very carefully in verse number 6, he says, I cannot do what God told me to do in the Bible. I cannot obey the word of God. I cannot obey the will of God. But, but what he does give us are the two reasons why he can't. And he is extremely accurate in this. Because when Mr. Ho such a one refuses to obey the Bible, or when you and I refuse to do the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God for all the spiritual sound and stuff and all the highfalutin excuses we have, it always comes down to one of these two things or both of them. And it's laid out so beautifully, isn't it? Hey, Mr. Ho, such one, why won't you obey the Bible? Hey, Mr. Ho, such one, why won't you do the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God? And the first reason is the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself. 
The reason he would not obey the Bible and follow the word of God and do the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God because the Bible interfered with himself. This is what I want. I got my plans. I've got my wishes. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. I got my life laid out ahead of me. I got my retirement plan. I got all this worked out. Excuse me. But for all of my plans and all the stuff that I've got lined up, having Ruth the Moabitess in my family is not part of my plans. Sorry, but, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm going here and I'm going there and I'm going to have this and I'm going to have that. It's just how I'm going to do this. He wouldn't obey the Bible because the Bible got in the way of himself. You know, we see this all the time where I live in Phoenix, Arizona. About this time of the year, actually, you know, maybe December, a bunch of people like from here, you know, and points north, they find their way to Phoenix right up until the weather starts getting hot. Then the Lord leads them back home. Now, I wouldn't understand why somebody who's unsaved does that. I got to tell you, I haven't heard a good reason yet why a member of a New Testament local church serving God in their local church thinks it's all right to leave their local church for six months because it's cold. You say, that's so harsh. Well, I'm not the one who said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together until the temperature gets down to zero. But I'm not the one who wrote that. I'm not the one who said, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And yet, you know how many people there are? And look, I understand unsaved people doing what unsaved people do. But there's all kinds of people who say, well, I may be a member of a New Testament church. See you next uh, May, Pastor. I'm out of here. Because I got my plans. And this is my retirement. And I work for this. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to please myself. And I'm going to go here. And I'm going to do that. I got this all laid out. And you're going to try to tell me serving the Lord at Grace Baptist Church? Oh, that just gets away in the way of myself. And at least the guy's honest, isn't he? I mean, he's real spiritual, son. I, I, I cannot. No, no, no. I will not. I will not obey God. I will not obey the will of God. I will not obey the word of God because it's getting in the way of what I want. And my life is all about me. And if that was a problem with that guy, he didn't live in the days that we do, you know, where it's all about the social media and the Facebook, and you better like me because if you don't like me, then I won't like you. And the most important thing is that more people like me than like you. And you need to know that I had breakfast this morning, and then I went down to the superstore. You need to know that I put gas in the car. And you need to know every detail of my life because I am so important and everything revolves around me. Just exactly what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3. Men shall be lovers of their own self. And when it is all said and done, nope, I can always live for the will of God. You can always live for the will of God. We can always do right. We can always do it because Christ will strengthen us to do it. So if we don't obey the Bible and if we don't follow him, it is because that was our choice. I cannot. No, I won't. It was going to get in the way of my plans. 
So you notice the first reason he won't obey the will of God and the word of God is because of myself. It's going to get in the way of what I want. But notice at the end of verse 6, there's a second reason. Lest I mar my own inheritance. And those are the two reasons that Christian people don't live for the will of God because it gets in the way of me and it gets in the way of my stuff. My inheritance. I'm sorry, Pastor, you preach all you want to about laying up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, but I got my inheritance and I got my stuff and I got my dream house and I got this and that and I need more toys and I need more stuff and I need more money and I'll never be happy until I get more stuff. And then we get more stuff and we end up being more miserable than we were without the stuff. Because stuff never made anybody happy. There's a very, very well-respected writer who takes a guess here. Could I give this to you? You know what he says? Take it or leave it. It's human. He said, when the man didn't want to mar his own inheritance, maybe he was thinking that if I bring a Moabitess into my family, then one of my descendants could never be the Messiah. Because the Messiah wouldn't have Moabitess blood in him. <laughs> really. And that would have been a very normal way to think. And I don't know if that's true, but that certainly makes some sense, at least to me. Funny how that human Savior and his human side, not only did he have Moabitess blood, he had some of Rahab's blood, some of Tamar's blood. He had a lot of blood. Of course he did. For unto you is born this day a Savior, a Savior for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. And yet he had to be thinking, it's going to get in the way of my son. Maybe he's thinking, I've got the inheritance all laid out for my sons. You know, he's getting that much, he's getting that. And if this Ruth the Moabitess becomes part of my family, and she's like a concubine, a kind of a sub-wife to me, and I have to follow the Bible and raise up a son to her, oh, you know, that son is going to take some of my kids' inheritance. And whatever is the thought process here, in a moment of honesty, Mr. Ho such a one tells you and he tells me how to become a big nobody in heaven. It doesn't matter how famous, it doesn't matter how great, it doesn't matter how rich, it doesn't matter anything else. When we decide that I will not obey the Bible because of myself or and my stuff, you can see God laugh and say, fine. But around here, you'll just be Mr. or Miss Ho such a one. Around here, we're not even going to disgrace my Bible with your name. And around here, you'll just be Mr. Polonial Mooney for all of eternity. And in 10 million years, when the Lord gets around to teaching us the book of Ruth, we're still going to be hearing about Polonial Mooney. How to become Mr. Ho, such a one. Well, when Mr. Ho such a one says, I'm not going to obey the will of God, I don't suppose he got those words out of his mouth when good old Boaz said, if you won't, then I will. And right in front of the ten leading elders, I mean, you know the story. He cuts the deal. The next thing you know, Mr. Ho such a one hands over his shoe. And, and can you imagine him going their separate directions that day? Here's Ruth and Boaz, you know, and they're holding this shoe, and no doubt the tears are flowing, and they're rejoicing. And I got to tell you, I, I don't know, but I can imagine old Mr. Ho such a one get with some of his buddies. And maybe when nobody's looking, I can see him starting to laugh, and I can hear Mr. Ho such a one say, whoa, whoa. 
Was that ever close? And they probably joked about it. That's what people like that would do. And I can hear them say, you know, I was that close to having Moabitus blood in my family. That close. Right. Well, the Bible tells us Mr. Boaz stands in verse 9 and said to the elders and to all the people, Y'all witnesses this day, I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Killian's. And he had an extra shoe. Boy, he got a good deal out of this. And, Malon, and he said, I bought all that was Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess. The, the last time we'll ever see that in the Bible. The wife of Malon have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren. Hey, Boaz said, if Mr. Ho such a one won't, then I will. I will live for the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And I don't even have to work out. If I'm obeying God, I'm the happiest guy in the world anyhow. So Mr. Ho such a one hands his shoe over and he's off to be awfully happy that that Ruth the Moabitess is in his family. As for Boaz, well, we do know a little bit about him. You know, for the other gentlemen, we don't even know his name. And all we do is know that he's a big joke. He's Mr. Hocus Pocus, Mr. Poloni Almoni, Mr. Ho, such a one. But you know, when we come down to verse 13, and it says, Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. You know, you know that verse was that close to saying, Mr. Ho, such a one. And then, and then when the Bible tells us the Lord gave her conception, she bare a son, and the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman that his name may be famous in Israel. And, and then, then when we go down to verse 17, the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying there's a son born to Naomi, and they call this name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Pharez. Pharez begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. Ram begat Aminadab. Aminadab begat Nashon. Nashon begat Salmon. And Salmon begat... Boaz. That was that close to saying, Mr. Ho, such a one. And Boaz. It was that close to saying, Mr. Ho, such a one. Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. You know that not too long after, this, a couple centuries, I suppose. Mr. Solomon was called of God to build a beautiful temple. You know, out in front of the temple, there were two massive pillars. And for whatever the reason, they, they gave names to those pillars. I mean, Israel was awfully good at that kind of thing. And you know what the name of one of the pillars was? Boaz. And for whatever the reasons, there's arguments about that, but whatever the reasons, when every time they looked at that pillar, they had to be reminded of the story of Boaz. Do you know that pillar was about that close to being named Mr. Ho, such a one. Then, of course, there was that little matter we looked at on Sunday morning from Matthew chapter number one. Remember? Abraham begat Isaac. You know, the old thump, 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 wilt thou, I wilt, she wilted, they get married. Guess what we're going to have a nine months thing? And, of course, in Matthew chapter number one and verse number five, it says, Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. It was that close to saying, Mr. Ho, such a one. And 3,300 years later, here we are, reminded that one of the most godly, wonderful pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament was none other than an old, old man who said, I will follow the will of God. I will follow the word of God. His name was famous in Israel. 
His name is famous here. His name is famous there. Everybody knows Boaz. But for the other guy, well, that would be known as Mr. Ho such a one. Also known as Poloni Almoni. Because when the word of God and the will of God was presented to him, he said, I cannot obey God. He should have said, I will not. Because I love myself and I love my stuff. Folks, we get one chance to do this. I am not a golfer. I am not a good enough Christian to be a golfer. But I understand that when a golfer on the golf course has a bad shot, not in the pros or anything, but when two guys are playing, they have what they call a mulligan. That's when I had a shot I don't like, let me do a do-over. You know, folks, there may be mulligans on the golf course, but there are no mulligans when it comes to life. We have one chance to get this right. And when it comes time to obey the Bible and the will of God, if we're going to convince ourselves, I cannot, because of myself and my stuff. And we need to know that God is not impressed. Many years ago, there was a, a famous Christian baseball player. He played for a team called the Yankees. <clears throat> I know in Canada, most people like the Blue Jays, and I happen to grow up as a Red Sox fan, so we do have something in common, don't we? Maybe not in common, but we certainly have a common enemy. And yet, 50, 60 years ago, there was a second baseman who played for the Yankees, a tremendous Christian man named Bobby Richardson. Now, I know we don't appreciate Christian ball player. We don't appreciate that because I know what we're used to, right? We're used to somebody playing a ball game, you know, and when the game's over, they go out to the midfield, and they get on their knees, and they pray, and, and they look so spiritual, and they talk about how the Lord does this and that, and then and they go out and get drunk and beat somebody up. That's kind of our view of Christian athletes. But 50 or 60 years ago, it wasn't like that. And when I was a boy, I always enjoyed baseball. My dad played a little bit of baseball in the minor leagues, and, and when I was a boy, <clears throat> there were just a handful of Christian ball players, just a handful. Because if you were a Christian, you were ostracized. You would pay a tremendous price. Your teammates would laugh at you. When the game was over, you would go that way, and the other 24 guys went that way to drink and carouse and party. It was very lonely. It was very difficult. You would be taunted. You would be ridiculed. It wasn't kind of like it is today where the Christians just drink and cuss and live like the world does. Back then, Christians lived like Christians. And when I was a boy, Bobby Richardson was known across America for his great testimony for Christ. Tremendous man of God. Bobby Richardson said as he was going in his biography, when he was going up through the, the minor leagues, like any man you can imagine, I could appreciate, he wanted to be accepted. He didn't want to ruffle any feathers. And, and can I just be a silent testimony? You know, that kind of thing. And then Bobby Richardson said one day he was driving away from Yankee Stadium and his son, his young son, had some of the mail that fans had sent. That kind of thing happens a lot, I suppose. And he said his son, as they would go home from the games, he'd love to read the letters to his dad. And it was somebody from Canada, from Ontario, 
sent a letter to Bobby Richardson, and in that letter he had written a little poem. And as his boy read that poem to a young baseball player, Bobby Richardson, the words began to smite him in the heart until he finally decided there's something more important than a baseball career, something more important than fame and riches and me, and that is to live for Jesus. And my, did he ever build a testimony. The poem the Canadian gentleman wrote went like this. Your name may not appear down here in this world's hall of fame. In fact, you may be so unknown that no one knows your name. The Oscars and the praise of men may never come your way, but keep in mind God has rewards that he'll hand out someday. The hall of fame is only good as long as time shall be, but keep in mind God's hall of fame is for eternity. To have your name inscribed up there is greater or more by far than all the wealth and all the fame of any man-made star. The crowd on earth, they'll soon forget if you're not at the top. Oh, they'll cheer like mad until you fall and then their praises stop. But God, he never does forget. And in his hall of fame, by simply trusting his only son, forever there's your name. I tell you, friend, I wouldn't trade my name however small. That's written there beyond the stars in that celestial hall for all the famous names on the earth or the glory that they share. I'd rather be an unknown here but have my name up there. One day a man stood at the crossroads with an offer for the ages. He could have been Mr. Somebody in Heaven as he said yes to the Bible and yes to the will of God. But when God got in the way of himself and his stuff, he says, I cannot. And forever and forever and forever, Mr. Somebody will be known as Poloni Almoni, Mr. Ho Such a one. Only one life, said the missionary. It'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ is going to last. We stand at the crossroads. We have a choice to make. Never let it be said, I cannot obey the Bible. That would be lying to ourselves. We can always do the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God but we need to know it's going to get in the way of ourself and our stuff. So we have to ask ourselves, do I want to be a somebody here or a somebody there? Mr. Oh, such a one.